Good morning, church. <clears throat> Turn, if you will, into uh, your copy of God's Word this morning. We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 2, from where we heard uh, the Travers read this morning. If you are using one of those uh, Bibles in front of you, uh, there are a couple of different versions now out there. Uh, 757 could be one in the slimmer version, um, 807 in the other one. Or you can do the easy thing and follow along the wall behind me. We take up the story of Jesus' uh, birth. Now, uh, the family has uh, traveled a long way. They have arrived in Bethlehem. And uh, we're going to see many things happening in this, this chapter as, uh, as we read it. They've now uh, had a visit paid to them by wise men, these, these sages from the East who are going to pay homage and respects to Jesus. Uh, we're going to hear in this chapter prophecies fulfilled. Uh, there was one promise, and so the prophecies foretold of him, a shepherd of God's people. We're going to hear about miraculous moving stars, of dreams, of gifts fit for a king, great things in this chapter. We're also going to hear, though, about deception and genocide and escape to Egypt. More prophecies fulfilled because, after all, God's will cannot be undone. So this is an amazing story. So I encourage you to give your attention to God's Word as we read it this morning. We're going to read the entire chapter 2 of Matthew. Hear God's holy Word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star when they had seen that they had seen when it rose before them went until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and younger according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he should be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pause for a moment and pray. Lord, we desire this morning, if what we're doing here is serving a living God, we desire to hear from you. Speak to us by your word, we pray. Speak to us uh, in these words from the preacher. May they give glory to your name. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have on your phone this um, live photo setting. Maybe you don't. I think that's just an iPhone thing. And by the way, if you don't have an iPhone, you should get one. But nobody... Nobody I know, even with an iPhone, even like cares about this setting, but it's a live photo setting. Uh, it's kind of like the burst setting. If you were to hold down the button, right, it takes a whole bunch. But the live photo setting is very interesting, and I think it, I think it kind of captures what we're doing in this series that we've been doing throughout Advent as we look at these Christmases. See, the live photo setting, like when you hit it, what it does, it actually captures the last few moments before the picture actually snaps. So it's very interesting. Um, what we're doing in this series on messy Christmas is we're looking at the messiness that's real to all our Christmases. And we can't believe that Christmas is all about the picture-perfect pose of the family up there, right? Because we, it's hard for us to forget like what was happening right before everybody actually got still and smiled and posed, Right? There was the tension, there was the, the argument, there was like snapping kids into place, right? Not all Christmas is picture perfect and beautiful. There's some messiness about it. So we've been looking at that throughout December. And so we've, we've heard from Jeff about the messiness of broken dreams, the, the messiness of broken relationships, and the messiness of suffering. And we see all of these in the first Christmas, as well as all the Christmases since and all the Christmases are our lives as well. But lest we think we're just victims of broken dreams or the target of suffering or we're the ones that are innocent when it comes to broken relationships, this passage seems to lay a lot of responsibility a little closer to home. And that's at your feet and at my feet. Don't you and I contribute our parts to the messiness of Christmas? Don't, don't we bring a lot to that photo just before it's taken and maybe sometimes after as well? 
Aren't we kind of responding many times in agitation, aggravation, and anger instead of with patience, love, and understanding? I know I am, and I can imagine it's you as well. Of course we do, and if the live photo was kind of just on us, what would it capture right before and right after? Would we be ashamed of it, or would we be proud? That's what makes Herod's reaction to Jesus' birth a a picture of, of all of us, okay? We see in Herod... Our heart's reaction. Jesus' birth signals that there's a new authority, a new ruler, but you and I want to control our own lives. And so we're threatened by anything that challenges our rule, much like Herod. Now we've seen the wise men, and they, they, they stand in stark contrast to our own monstrous pride and our grasp for control. How do we compare to these sages from the East? We'll kind of start there with them. Because they recognize that this child is God's king. And that's my first point. The child is God's king. So let's talk about the wise men. They journey west to Jerusalem. And upon arrival, see, um, they say in the presence of another king, a supposed king of the Jews, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these are mysterious figures. Now, we sing a song that we um, might be more familiar with uh, its details than maybe Matthew 2 here. How many of these men were there? Were they royalty? Where do they come from? We three kings of Orient are? Does that answer all the questions? No, actually, we don't know how many. We don't know where exactly they're from except the east, and if you know your map, there's a lot that falls into the east of Jerusalem. So we don't know exactly where they're from, how many, but what we do know um, is that they've come to worship Jesus. We can't forget our Bible history. The, the Jews before this time, they've been, they've been exiled abroad. Uh, many people throughout all the world, um, or at least through that region, have probably come into contact with the Jews in the Hebrew religion. And so it stands to reason that some of the religions stayed in that area as people are earnestly seeking God. And so these learned men, these magi, these wise men, they read of the coming Messiah King, and all at once they see a star. And they're like, well, we've got to follow that star. And so they follow the star, and it takes them to where, of course, the Jews' king would be found, and that's the great city of Jerusalem. But with so many questions left unanswered about who these men are, it kind of brings the attention where it should be and at what they're doing. These wise men are worshiping Jesus. You might imagine they expect the whole city of Jerusalem to be uh, in uproarious joy over the newborn king. And you can imagine their surprise when it's just silent and, and there's... Nobody who seems to even know. And so when they say to the king, they really do um, say something that meets his eyes with, or meets his ears with newness. And the chief priests and scribes, they, they appear apathetic. They're, they're summoned in, right? Herod wants to ask them, where, where is he to be born? Where's this ruler to come from? But they seem to be apathetic because they're looking not for a baby in a manger. They're looking for someone to overthrow a kingdom. Who needs a savior from sin? 
And, and it doesn't even seem to move them that they can find the prediction in the Scriptures. And then the content of what is quoted here from Micah, Oh, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. A ruler who's a shepherd. A ruler who has like great power, but also great tenderness and love and care as a shepherd would. But they don't seem to care. And they don't seem to be moved. So we have the wise men, and we have their worship. Uh, after listening to the king, it says, they went on their way. The star that had kind of led them westward now seems to be moving. So they actually don't need the prediction. They don't, they don't need Bethlehem as a, as a GPS point, but they have the star that kind of leads them, and it moves and then comes to rest over the city uh, of Bethlehem. The star, perhaps an, an asteroid, celestial light, some like temporary here today, gone tomorrow thing, we can't really say, but the text says star, that it's a star that comes to rest over the place where the, the child was. And the wise men go in, and, and this time it's a house, not a stable. And so some time has passed. We don't know exactly how long, but they've apparently settled in Bethlehem here a little bit. It's not just a, um, a temporary place for them. And they go in, and they worship. And they worship. Now, you and I are prone to think of worship as like what happens between like the opening prayer and the time when like the preacher gets up to preach. And we think that's, that singing and songs, that's worship. And certainly that's a part of worship, but I think the wise men here kind of broaden our understanding. So they are praising Jesus. It's out loud. It's with words. It's giving esteem and worth and value and saying, you mean something, and I'm going to tell you what you mean. And then their worship is, is full of gifts, like sacrificially giving from themselves and saying, because I esteem you of such high worth and value, I will do it at great cost to myself and I will give you something. You see how their, their concept of worship is as much broader, has to be, than just singing in song. And let's consider their gifts. So one of the early church fathers, Origen, summarized the nature of their gifts kind of famously this way. He says, um, they gave gold as to a king, myrrh to one who was mortal, uh, and incense as to God. Uh, and it seems to be true of each one of these. Gold is mentioned throughout the Scriptures in reference to royalty. One example in, in just a kind of a description of Solomon's wealth in First Kings um, Solomon's wealth is described using the word gold like ten times. So it's certainly associated with, with royalty. The frankincense does speak of service to God. Incense was put on burning coals and it was burned, so smoke comes up. And the smoke was meant to kind of picture like our prayers rising up to God. And then you have myrrh. Two purposes for this perfume. Anybody who's alive uh, knows what it's like to smell good. Um, anybody hoping to get perfume or cologne for Christmas? I am. Um, FYI. <clears throat> if you're looking for something. Um, but, like, there's another use for it, and that's like, if somebody's like dead, so not somebody living, but somebody dead, like it's gonna, it's gonna make their dead and decaying body, um, less repulsive. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold because Jesus is not only 
a king, but he's the king. Frankincense because he's God. He's a God king. And myrrh because he is truly man and his destiny is to, to lay down his life and die. And then we can say more about their sacrificial giving. It's uncertain whether they knew all this about Jesus, this baby in a manger, and yet they worshiped him. So what about you and me? We're not sure what they knew, probably just pieces and parts, but they most certainly didn't know the full record of the New Testament, of Jesus' life, Jesus' power, Jesus' miracles, then his death and resurrection. They didn't know all that. But what they did know was enough to say, this one is great. This one is, is God's king, and so I worship him. So I ask you, what about you? You and I who have the full record of all that Jesus has done, how does your worship and my worship compare? Is it sacrificial in the same way? Is it esteeming worth and value of this one in the same way? I sure hope it is. This begins to show us that while Jesus may be God's king, he is most certainly also a divisive king. The wise men worship Jesus because he's born king of the Jews, the, the ruler, shepherd of God's people. It's been foretold in the prophets, so they worship. But in those days, as well as our, in our own, not all will bow before Jesus. He is a divisive king, and that's my second point. We don't exactly understand, um, or rather we can understand Herod and his reaction his surprise and alarm. Was not he the one and only king of the Jews? Like, they come into the house, what do you mean I am not king of the Jews? You're looking for someone else? So, just considering Herod's reaction here, he's not only troubled, but when he's troubled, the kingdom is troubled. It says Jerusalem was troubled with him. Who is this Herod? He's, he's not actually um, Jewish, And he's not altogether familiar with the prophecies surrounding the Messiah. So verse 4, he summons in uh, the professionals, those scribes and the high priests, and and he he asks them. And so they report to him what the Scriptures say. It's Bethlehem. That's where he's to be born. And then Herod relays their, their report secretly to the Magi. He certainly doesn't want to be, um, to make his intentions known. Because he certainly does not want to aid them in their desire to worship this new king. He instead is devising a way to find out where he is so that he can send troops, perhaps, that can carry out um, a death sentence. Any challenger to my throne, he might conclude, I have to take him out. So how does this kind of picture our reactions? Um, I asked this of Sarah, so I have permission to talk about moms a little bit. Um, and I want to, I want to say that because, um, I love moms. I love my mom when she was still living. I love Sarah. But I have noticed something and Sarah agrees. Do I have enough caveats here? Okay. Sarah agrees that, that moms like really appreciate like peace and order. And that's, that's her like domain. And like if there's not peace and order in the home and like in her domain, then, then you gotta, then watch out. Like control has been threatened. And um, and it comes down easily, and it comes down hard too. 
and mom loses your temper at one, watch out because like you could get it too. Like it can come quickly on you. Like a proverb, I grew up in my house. If, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Is that only in Tennessee? Okay. It's everywhere. All right. All right. Mama ain't happy. Ain't nobody like, cause you could be like, you didn't, you didn't do anything. But if mama ain't happy, because that peace and, 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 and quiet and, and order, that's just so important. But watch out if it's upset, right? But I see it in my life too, and I'm not a mom. Like, I reserve my greatest anger toward those people who I would tell you I love the most. Do you do that? Like the people who in this world I love the most, they draw out the fiercest anger from me. Maybe I think they, they owe me something. Maybe it exposes that what I really want out of people is for them to give me order and control. And my love is more like what they can give me rather than what I can give them. Maybe you can begin to see that in your own life. And so that when there's this rival authority or someone who seeks to take down our autonomy, then we react with anger or bitterness or many other things. Do you get the sense that um, there might be a little Herod in you? But wait, Anthony, like I've heard other things about Herod. Well, let's talk about this. What about this Herod? What about this Herod that we're now thrust into comparing ourselves with? So Herod was born around uh, 74 B.C., scholars believe, and he was about 69 years old when these wise, wise men arrived in Jerusalem. Herod was not a Jew, as I said, by race or nationality. He was an Edomite, and yet he's king of the Jews by appointment of the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate gave him the area of Judea as his rule. He is king over that. And that began about 37 B.C. One commentator I've found summarized Herod in this way. He said he is capable and crafty. Okay? So he was capable. Herod was an able speaker, a motivator to his troops. He was an able builder, giving Jerusalem a theater, an amphitheater, and this thing called a hippodrome which is where like chariots race, it was magnificent. And then, of course, he built a massive palace to himself and gave himself the name, you know, Herod the Great. And to add all that, his, the fame of his name and possibly win the favor of the Jews as well, remember, he's not a Jew, he begins a, a building project enlarging the sanctuary in Jerusalem. So he's able, but he's also crafty. Like he married many times, and these were political marriages to make a political alliances around him. And then Herod adds to his, his abilities and craftiness a, a, a maniacal cruelty. Just about everybody he sees, he believes, is trying to rival his throne and rival his rule. Uh, he had a high priest executed who, felt who he felt threatened his throne. Uh, this high priest, by the way, happened to be his wife's grandfather. Okay? Um, he suspects the same wife of having an affair, so he executes both of them. And then um, by that time, there's nobody left in the family to like rival his throne except the two kids that he had by that wife. And surely they're safe, right? No. He actually has them executed as well. And just like a few days before he dies, he's going he's gonna to take out another son. So with, with all that death and with all that cruelty, is it any surprise to us that he would 
He would not only want to take out this one Jesus, but like want to take out like the whole region. Reportedly, Caesar Augustus says of him, it's safer to be his pig than to be his son, speaking of Herod. Proverbs 22 says the terror of a king is like a growling lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. From, from Jesus' infancy, Jesus has been a divisive king. He always seems to be dividing people between those who accept him and those who reject him. And Herod is clearly one who rejects the rule of Jesus. And from our infancy, we have been ones to want to maintain our authority and our control in our own lives. We resist the rule of anyone over us. We certainly don't want God to rule over us. We don't want to serve Him or serve our neighbor. And we try to go at this problem with maybe education or maybe therapy or other things to help us give up control, but we won't do it. There's a little bit of Herod in all of us. Even the murderous, maniacal Herod that we're seeing here. Those of us who want to be served rather than serve, and we call this, we call it sin. And we have to see that like any anger unchecked in our lives would give birth to the same level of cruelty. Um, any lust that goes unchecked will give rise to theft. Any impatience that full is full grown is going to strike down any in our way. But beloved, Christ has come, praise God, to save those who have murder in their hearts, who have impatience in their hearts, and, and all of us that are grasping for control. He's come to save us and to bring us under His gracious rule. Uh, look at what happens as Herod grasps for power and it comes to nothing. Uh, verse 16 Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in, in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the, the wise men. Now, until I'd studied this passage, I, I, I didn't know quite like what to make of the number here, like how many children were actually slain in this. Uh, we shouldn't get the idea that there were thousands or even hundreds. Bethlehem wouldn't have been a large town. There wouldn't have been that many boys. There wouldn't have been that many boys under two. Um, but still, there, as some have written, probably about 15 to 30 children whose lives were snuffed out. Heartless and, on top of that, meaningless. Like, it didn't do anything. It didn't do what Herod wanted. But it does introduce to Bethlehem weeping and mourning at the tragedy of it. And that's where this quote from the Old Testament Scriptures comes in. This genocide actually fulfills what's spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 18, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah was located on the border in between the, the two... Um, kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And so by speaking to Ramah or about Ramah, it kind of represents the whole kingdom, Israel and Judah. And it mentions Rachel. Rachel is the one who had um, children and whose children represent also Israel and Judah 
who in times in history had been taken away and cast into exile. So here we see Rama weeping, Rachel over her children, because they're no more. They've been scattered in exile. And it seems to be a really sad tale. She refuses even to be comforted. Her two kingdoms have been taken into exile. Rachel is robbed of the things that are dearest to her, and she refuses to be comforted. And Bethlehem now, in the same way, finds weeping and mourning at the death of her sons. In Herod's grasp for power, he changes the fate for more than a dozen families. And there's reason for grief, but there's also reason in this verse and in the chapter it's taken from for hope. And I think that's intentional on the part of Matthew. What do I mean by that? How can you say that? Matthew knows what he's doing. And don't forget this Old Testament reference out of Jeremiah. It comes from Jeremiah 31. And the people hearing this in Matthew's day would have known Jeremiah and the promises that come after the weeping of Rachel and of Ramah. What are they going to read later on in Jeremiah 31? That the Lord loves his people. And it's not a short-term love, it's an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3. 31.10, those who have been scattered into exile, the Lord will gather in again. He's promising to bring them in. 31.6, Rachel is told to weep no more. Your child is the Lord's darling. 31.31, the Lord will make a new covenant with his people, in which 31.34, he says, he will remember their sins no more. So, Even Herod's genocide here is fulfilling something of the plan of God. It's meaningless in the day, but it's meaningful in the grand scheme of what God is trying to do. Even the maniacal, murderous Herod cannot thwart God's plan. His sin actually carries it out. Yahweh brings forth, he says, in Jeremiah 33, then, this righteous branch. The idea of one being kind of cut down, the tree being cut to the stump, but then a branch still coming forth. This righteous branch is a picture of Jesus. Matthew saying, take heart. This righteous branch will presently return from Egypt. And he'll save all those who put their trust in him. This is the one who will later say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Matthew 11. Peter's going to say this. The stone that the builders rejected is the choice and precious cornerstone. Is this Jesus rejected by men? Is he precious to you? He's a divisive king. You serve him or you don't. Or do you like Herod challenge his authority over you? So we see not all in this world will bow their knee to Jesus. Many have and still do today oppose him because they don't want him to rule in their lives. But this brings me to my final point, and it's a question. This is by far my shortest point. The question is, is this child your king? He's God's king. He is a divisive king. Is he your king? No one in all the world 
can rule their own life and expect to save themselves. Let's return to our story just briefly. Verses 19 and following. Uh, Mary and Joseph, they're, they're now on the run. Life was certainly challenging for them, uh, as it was for all of Jerusalem and for all the Jews there. Remember, they're, they're under occupation. Rome is in control. They're slaves. They're, they're, they're destitute and impoverished. Life now for Mary and Joseph, as well as for many, is, is tough. Promises of relief, though, from the scriptures keep them going. These, these promises, these, these prophecies of one who will come, the coming Messiah. They might ask the question, how, how will he, we know? How will we recognize him when he comes? And that's what the prophecies do. He, he'll be born in Bethlehem. He'll be born of a virgin. Will he, will he exercise military might? No, no, he won't. He, in fact, he's going to be despised and forsaken by men. But you can look to him and hope. Or when life gets hard, you can take control yourself. Herod, when he took control, he's, he's, he's thwarted at every turn. He orders the wise men to report back to him and they escape. Then God speaks to, to, to Joseph in a dream, rise, take the child, flee to Egypt. And try as he may, Herod cannot dethrone Jesus. And try as you and I may, we, we cannot either. We not only see the contrast of King Herod to the wise men, <clears throat> one refuses to worship while, while others bow down and give their gifts, but we also see the contrast between Herod and Jesus. Herod is the, 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 the would-be earthly king, Gentile king of the Jews. Jesus is a Jew and the would-be king of all men, not just the Jews. Because while Jesus' Jewish bloodline is critical, his kingdom is a multinational, multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural kingdom. Praise God. Matthew 8 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. Romans 10, 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her... Not, not the, like the dirt, like not that earth receive, but peoples in all the world, let the earth receive her king and every heart preparing room. He rules the world with truth and grace. I love that we're going to see this in a minute, okay? And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the glories of his love. Is he your king? You see, the king is not the exclusive property of any one nation. This Jesus is God's king for the whole world. And he wants to be our rescuer king, no matter what race we are. If you want to see how important this kind of multinational, multicultural kingdom is in the book of Matthew, you've got to read to the end. Uh, if you just stop at the, the, opening, the, the opening book in, um, you, it'd be like reading just the opening chapter of a book and thinking you have the whole story. But but read to the end, the final chapter. And what do we find there? Jesus says to his disciples, this, this great commission, this great send-off, all authority has been given to me, he says. 
I'm that kind of king. I've got all the authority. And now I'm going to send you make disciples of who? All nations. Make disciples of all nations. Heaven's doors, he seems to say, is wide open to us. It's wide open to you. Is he your king? That's what the presence of the wise men at Christmas time means, that the door of Jesus' kingdom is open to all. The world around us says you have to be somebody, or you have to be from certain places to be somebody. You've got to know certain things, have certain credentials. Uh, the world around us seems to say that the powerful are in and the weak are out. But in Jesus' kingdom, the only haves and have-nots are or those that are in and those that are out, it comes down to condition of the heart. Jesus says, it's not the haves and have-nots, the great and the weak. He says it's a condition of the heart. Those that are in are the humble. Those that are out are the ones that are proud. If you humbly receive Jesus as your king, you're in. There's nothing you have to do. It's what he has done. Those that refuse to submit to this one, those are the ones that are out. In their pride, they reject him and reject his rule. No one in all the world can rule their own life and expect to save themselves. But anyone in this world who humbles themselves and submit to this one and his rule, that person will be saved. Consider once again the prophecies concerning Jesus. And I and I, and I love this that concerns Nazareth here. Because it seems to suggest that there's a prophecy in the scripture somewhere that, that says of Jesus, he shall be called a Nazarene. But there's no line in the Old Testament anywhere that actually says that. So what's going on there? Uh, notice just a few words before that. It says, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. What we understand then that's going on there is it's not one prophet being quoted but the sense of many different prophets that's being carried through. What are we talking about there? Well, what this means is like Nazareth will be like being from Nowheresville, okay? It's like being associated with the worst place in the world to be from. Now, I lived down in Alabama for eight years. I'm not saying Alabama is one of those places, but I often got picked on by people from Alabama for being from Tennessee, Go figure it. I, I'm amused by that. But, um, but like, I would tell them, I was like, what you think, okay, let me, let, me, let me clear this up for you. What we think of Alabama is what Alabama thinks of, and I'm not going to fill in the blank there because you might be from there and I don't want to offend anybody here. But like, but think of that place. Where would you fill in the blank? Like, who do you, th- like, where's the place you think, well, I would never want to be considered from there. That's what Nazareth is like. It's nowhere. It's podunk, right? To be considered from there, which is what he's going to be known by in his adulthood, Jesus of Nazareth. What? Nothing good comes from Nazareth, we see in the scriptures. Nazareth is weak, insignificant, but that's what our Lord is showing himself to be. He identifies with the weak. He identifies with the insignificant. He identifies with the humble. And that's where God sovereignly leads him. Isaiah predicted it. Jesus would be despised and rejected by men. The Psalms 
Jesus takes up these words to describe himself. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised. All who see me mock me and they make their, or wag their mouths at me. They wag their heads. You and I, in this life, kind of feel like we need to maintain power and control in our lives to have a sense of freedom and purpose and significance. And when, and when the tough gets going, or the, the yeah, the, how's the saying go? When the going gets tough, that's what I'm trying to say, the tough get going. If it is to be, it's up to me. Like, we feel like we just got to have to hunker down, and it's up to us. And everything in Jesus opposes that, and opposes that impulse. I have come for the humble, he says, I've come for those who admit they're weak. I will save them not by what, by what they do, but by what I have done. And he's able to save us because he became weak for us on our behalf. Throughout Jesus' life, he doesn't seize power to save the world. He just keeps on saying, in order to save this world, I'm going to die. And I invite you into this life to die to self and live and be glorified in him. This child, this Jesus is he your king? Let me encourage you in this season to seek him, to worship him, and to bow before him. Let us pray.